Touch my heart, burn my soul. What is it that makes audiences Lots respond to Marley Monroe, better known as Lady Blackbird, as if she's already a star they just haven't heard about yet? Come on. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 12 of Song Chronicles. Our special guests today are the bewitching jazz vocalist Lady Blackbird and the award-winning producer, writer, and musician Chris Seafried. Together, the two created the incredible Lady Blackbird debut album, Black Acid Soul. In this interview, we talk about how much time goes into overnight success, how Marley feels being compared to her heroes, Nina Simone and Billie Holiday, and which song made Chris's therapist cry. You say forget you. Please welcome the incredible Lady Blackbird and Chris Seafried. That's a face I haven't seen in a while. How are you? When's the last time I, I think I saw you? Hotel Cafe. Yeah, the world has changed. Boy, has it. <laughs> How many lifetimes have happened since the last time that we were in the same room? Like a ridiculous amount. The apocalypse happened. <laughs> Life as we know it. The plague. Your career. <laughs> the incredible record that you've made. You and Chris together. You made the space for yourself to express who you are and your talent and protect it just such a beautiful thing and then the fact that you found felix (laughs) (laughs) it's just all a big match made in heaven so aside from fangirling i'm in the desert right now and i was driving around on these desert roads and listening to your record and it was so beautiful chris said that it almost feels like a duo for him because he's been so involved in every aspect of putting together of the record and feels fiercely protective to make sure everything goes well and things have been going incredibly well. You were doing this for so long and playing residencies in LA. (laughs) And it's great for people who are performers and songwriters to know, are you the same brilliant person you always were? And what does that feel like for you to have kept going and finally getting the attention and recognition? What is that like for you? How long do you have? (laughs) You know, first of all, just the fact that it did finally happen with Chris, you know, and all the times that I've tried before and the different people that I've worked with and the producers, the fact that everything that I have worked my entire life for happened this way and happened with this person is so special. So I wouldn't change any of it, you know, time-wise. It's developed and happened in just such a beautiful and organic way with I feel like the the most perfect person for this. So I'm so grateful for that in itself. And it's been such a long time coming. I've always gotten such a kick out of like, you know, when when people find like, oh, you know, we're hearing you. And it's like, oh my God, you know, overnight success or whatever. (laughs) That always kills me because it's like people never realize just how long you've been at it and at it and at it and playing those, the the cover gigs to pay the bills and, you know, recording the demos and writing and getting turned down. And in my case as well, being signed, being dropped. (laughs) It's been an incredibly long journey. I've worked so long at this. And, you know, back to your question of, was I always, you said brilliant or, you know, more brilliant now. I finally now getting to express that all in 
the only thing I ever wanted to do is make a timeless record, a classic album. And even in all the different genres and, you know, styles of music that I've tried and played and love, you know, it was always about what can we create that feels like we're not just tagging on someone else's, you know, whatever, but, but creating our own. And, and there's so much that's already been done. You know, sometimes it's hard to figure out what that is because, my gosh, <laughs> there's so much that already has been done. And that's why Chris was just perfect for this. And the whole fusion of what we did try to tap into all of those different styles and influences to create something specific for me. And so I feel like the entire goal of making a timeless piece and music and, and trying to develop something that is mine, I, I couldn't be more happy with. I'm so incredibly grateful. And everyone's response has been just amazing. I read these comments and the things that people are saying. It's like, that's the only thing you want is your hard work and effort. And then you finally put something out and you don't know how many people are going to react. And it's just been beautiful. <laughs> it is a beautiful thing. And I'm so happy to hear that. And Chris is sitting over there and you two have worked together a long time. When Chris and I met, he was saying, you've got to hear Marley. <laughs> and I know you as Marley. You're Lady yeah. B. Marley is Lady Blackbird. You know, there is this love that comes out in the partnership of you two writing together and making records together. It really comes across. And Chris, you are so versatile and diverse in the things that inform you musically. You've done a lot of great, amazing, and super successful projects. But this particular one, when we were talking earlier, you were expressing your gratitude and how this really allows you to express yourself in a way that you haven't been able to in one project before as an artist. Do you want to talk more about that? For me, working with Marley, we have such sympathy between the two of us. For myself as a producer, you know, I started as an artist, but as a producer, I quickly learned the art of not stepping on an artist and making sure that it's their space that you're creating. And so even when I'm working with Marley, and I said it's such an intense collaboration between the two of us as when we're writing tunes and stuff, I'm always mindful whether it's the lyrical content or the music itself. It's always, in my imagination, it's always her music, music for her, which because we share a lot of the same musical terrain and we influence one another, it's deeply satisfying musically. But, you know, I still get the same kick I got from the first time I heard Marley sing, like to hear her sing a tune we're working on or as we're singing, it's just so rewarding to work with great people. As, as a producer, that's what you want to be in the room with, great artists, great talent, so that you can indulge that, you know? And uh, that's something that's deeply satisfying to me and no more than when I'm with her. I mean, I have, I feel very fortunate to be in a collaboration with her where I get to think of song ideas or whatever I'm thinking of, but I'm always thinking in terms of the context of the music we're talking about. Like, for example, right now we're sort of crafting the second album and talking about what it should be about lyrically and what it wants to feel like musically. So these are the great, you know, artistic conversations you want to be having and with a great artist. So it's rewarding and I feel super lucky to be in this space with her. Green for the eyes, take a look 
did the name come about? Eddie Blackbird was so random. We had recorded Blackbird. I think we were in there listening to it. <laughs> what did, I think, Chris, you, what did you say? Something like, ask the lady. I think I, 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 think I said <laughs> something like, you should be, you should call yourself Blackbird or something like that. And I don't remember what the chronology of the thing was, but it, it definitely was born out of that tune. Like the genesis of this idea was we'd recorded a whole bunch of written an album's worth of material, kind of still figuring out a direction, but we were writing tunes that were good and things we were really liking. And then I had written this tune, which you know, Louise, this song, Nobody's Sweetheart. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, I got to see if Marley will sing this. I just wanted to hear her sing it, you know? And I laid it on her and she was like, play it again. And I just played it for her twice. This was the first time I really registered her musicality um, because it's a bit of a complex turn. It's got a complex bridge modulation. And I only played it for her twice. And she was like, yeah, I got it. And then we went into the studio <laughs> in, in the next room and I plugged in my guitar. We set up with Seth there and did two takes and she knocked the tune out. And that amazed me that she could just hear something that quickly. Cause oftentimes the things we've been doing, we'd sort of record as people do a verse first and then you do the pre and then you do the, you know, so this was like a live recording of a song that she just heard. So then consequently I started playing that for people and I was having a much more visceral response to that piece of music than I was having to the fully produced records that were, you know, grooves and beats and all yeah. kinds of things that one would expect. And that really told me something. I mean, I, I, I played this tune for my therapist and he, <laughs> cried, and he cried. I was going to say, tell, tell the therapist story. I love the therapist story. <laughs> I played it for my therapist and he cried. And I was like, this is some shit here, man. <laughs> Small grains rise above And now you never call Ripped apart like a paper doll Is our love for sure And I'm nobody's sweetheart anymore so that got me thinking and also at the time you know we'd been through some record company dances and the whole thing of like what an expense it is to carry a band and the whole thing and she was playing solo gigs and you know, the idea came out of the recording and the practicality of like, let's do something super stripped down so you could go out and play it and represent yeah. it. And so it came out of a very natural progression of us working together, dealing with acceptance and also, you know, turn downs, that kind of thing. And so it came from a practical place. And then as we started to trip on the idea, Marley Bird and Blackbird, Nina Simone's Blackbird, which I'd never heard before. And Nina's record is, is kind of like an acapella record with like an African drum. And so what we did was there's a pitch coming off the drum. So I just copped that pitch because she was like, I'd sing it in the same key. I think it was the same key. Anyway, we found her key. I just laid a Hammond B3 note down, a bass note and a click. And she went in the other room, same room we did W Sweetheart, cut the vocal, did it twice. It's the second take. And that's what we wound up using for the record. But that really started the process of like, you know, no there's a violence to that song and, you know, a real 
deep sadness and there's so many things going on in that song lyrically and so many things going on in Marley's delivery that it sort of set the tone for what could happen with the album. your mama's name was lonely And your daddy's name was Day after day, things started to occur to us and happen in terms of the pre-production of, you know, going into the studio and stuff. So it was just from the moment we stripped everything away and just made it about her voice, it just became so easy. And that feels so nice, you know, when you're not struggling or fighting for what it should be. It just shows itself. And there's such a trust between me and Chris that we have that I love so much. You know, he trusts me and I... and. And I trust him. So we can put, you know, what we do in each other's hands and <laughs> know we're going to come out with, with a, it's, it's, we're going to come out with a hell of a something. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Like we were part of the process for the Black Acid Soul record. Uh, we signed with a, with an independent label out of the UK called Foundation, which is run by Ross Allen, who in his past had been a, both an A&R person for Ireland and a DJ. And he's a crate digger. He knows he's got so much, you know, knowledge of songs, music, and he was sending us yeah. playlists. But the process was ultimately like, play the song for Marley. And does she relate to it? Could she do something with it that's uniquely hers? So it was like, you know, you get tunes, but then it's like, okay, what was landing for Marley? So it was really, really a fun process. It was almost like the way, you know, the old records were made. You know, you would have Sinatra and Sarah Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald and all these same people cutting the same tune, but the best version would be the one that became the hit. So we were getting part of the the idea of these playlists where they were sort of deeper cuts. You know, we weren't looking at like already hits. We were in this, right, let's find these songs and make our versions on them. But it was really fun. You know, and it was always about that it was right for her. The song Ruler of My Heart. That's just a fun one to walk around and sing. It really and is. Forget how fun that one is. We had been playing it live, Chris. And then we played it at one of the shows in London. I'm like, oh my God, I forgot how fun that song is. <laughs> yeah, that's a killer. And it really, it goes over great live. And that's sort of Marley's wheelhouse, that old soul thing like that. And it's not that easy, which is another sort of deep cut uh, New Orleans track you know those were like it's not that easy was easy to imagine ruler was a little for me like arranging it was a little more complicated because it was like okay how do we take this soul tune and make it jags like bill evans on a miles record how they dig into a stonato thing and make it a theme
you know, using certain ideas from that period of jazz or those records that we love and applying them to a soul tune became a cool way of dealing with the music, but always, always about the voice, you know, always about the key and how it's, how it's working for Marley. Cause you know, there's certain things that she does as a singer that would get lost on a record with hard production. Like she does this one particular thing where she'll extend a note where the melody of the note is gone, but the breath keeps going which I'd never really heard anyone do before, but it's something she does. And you can hear it on the album. Because there's <laughs> I love the fact that she points those things out that I didn't even know. I'm like, I do that? <laughs> now, you're, you know, now I'll be recording and singing, trying to catch myself <laughs> in the act. Well, how did you come across Black Acid Soul as the album title? Did you invent a genre by doing that? I sure thought we did. You know, when we started doing and recording all these songs back in the day, Chris would always hashtag Black Acid Soul. You know, and it did because everything we were doing, we were just trying to fuse all different parts and figure out that thing. And so for me, it always represented a fusion, you know, which is what I believe this album is. You know, it's not necessarily strictly jazz. It's You, you do hear influences of all sorts in that. So I, I was thinking, yeah, that's, that's like our own little subgenre. And I thought the name was so cool. So when we were looking for titles, we were like, what about Black Ass and Soul fits it perfectly? <laughs> it was meant to be much bigger than a hashtag. <laughs> it had to be used somewhere. It was a classic thing in the 60s where Black artists here in the States would get pigeonholed into a genre and then they go to the UK, seem to have a more open view of music for music's sake and not have to pigeonhole what music was and black acid soul it's almost the invention of a drama a drama <laughs> that was a good slip like an that. invention <laughs> of a drama <laughs> You could bring that to your therapist, Chris. <laughs> An invention of a genre and the fact that you were received so well there. And the comparisons weren't really comparisons to today. They were comparisons, if there were any, they would be to classic singers from the past. Did you feel that was a conscientious decision to go there first? I think that there has definitely been a bit of, there's been more closed minds, I believe, here within the States that don't quite know, you know, or want to take that risk or don't quite see the vision as, you know, some of the people there in the UK. So, yeah. Well, one of the things when we started talking about this concept and the word jazz came up, you know, I quickly had to remedy the conversation by saying, but you can still wear your outfits. <laughs> you know, <'cause, laughs> Because she, you know, she was like thinking, well, I'm not going to like sit on a stool and be that. Although I, I will say, Chris, they're, they're not as crazy as what they were. Right. And well, but there's still, I mean, it's still a part of what you're doing <laughs> yeah, and what's yeah. being presented and considered. But, you know, like as far as, you know, we were working with this British label and it was very much the idea that we thought we could get traction there first, like many acts have, and then, and then represent it here. If things had gone differently and we'd been signed first in the U.S., we may have just gone here, but it's just the way things worked out. And there was at the time that we were making the record, which was pre-pandemic, we just had certain certain ideas of how it could work over there. And I think we had discussed, you know, the remixes and things like that that we thought could hit the dance floors and stuff. But it, it just it just has worked out there. But we've also been really happily surprised with 
the reaction here. You know, it's really kind of, even though I do think, you know, Europeans um, by nature are just more accepting and open to things. They're just more open-minded. I've come across that in my lifetime in music, but this is being really well received across the board. It's just that we're assigned out of the UK. So the, the project is about a year behind here because we've had a real setup over there and we've done more dates over there and more promo and you know, done Jules Holland and we were supposed to do the Royal Albert Hall and we got COVID, but we've been active over there and we're going over there for extensive touring, but then we're going to come back and do like Newport Jazz and things here too. It's just the way it's gone, but there is that evidence of American artists being accepted there first. And even in the case of Tina Turner, you know, like Ike and Tina had a huge career in the UK that wasn't really represented quite as distinctively here. I mean, they did have, you know, Proud Mary and stuff that happened for them, but that was a, mar- a market they could always go to and be treated like royalty. So, and I've seen it, you know, I've seen her walk around the streets of London and people run after her. Here, if they run after her, they're asking for a rent. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> Just kidding, but you know, I've seen it, you know. <laughs> You know, there's really great original songs on it. Well, Chris, there's your song, Nobody's Sweetheart, but then there's three songs that you wrote together. Fix It is such an incredible song. What did that come out of? That one came out of Chris was playing the, the Bill Evans piece. And, you know, that was on one of the, the many playlists that, you know, we had been going through. And it was such a beautiful piece. We had it playing, just really getting lost in it. And that one came out relatively quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were actually playing the record. And then like I was just playing this, the chords on the piano. And that was a nice one because what happened, this happens a lot of times with Marley. I think the session was ending and I was like, let's just get this, like even today, we're going to like get a couple of starts going, you know, as you do, just bank them and be like, oh, I reviewed that one. That's cool. So I think she might've been singing over the Bill Evans track or I was playing, I don't remember, but I recorded it and she came up with the whole tag, the lyric and everything like that. And then I was like, oh, that's great. And then we came back the next day in the studio and sort of pushed the whole thing together between the two of us. And I was telling your friend Paul Zolo, we were doing a chat, that we had a third verse to it to sort of end the story. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and Marley was like, she was like, I, I don't know if we really want to finish it that way. Maybe we just keep it, you know, so you don't know what happens. I should just wait. I should just Everything's played 
So we pulled the third verse and did a reprise of the first verse. And so it was just a C to F kind of thing. Then we went into the studio to cut it. Darren Johnson plays piano on the record and he played with Miles. And so Darren all of a sudden, you know, goes online and looks at the sheet music and he does the exact inversion that Bill Evans did. And it was like, well, there's no arguing with that. The only argument will be with people here, they'll be like, that's Bill Evans. So we were like, that's a a co-write now. And it was a wonderful experience because a lot of times that can be scary. You can send it to an estate and they can turn you down. But we sent it to them and they loved it. And they said, yeah, we'll do a co-write with you on this, which was really a beautiful feeling. Yeah. That's wonderful. So how did you choose the musicians, the other musicians that were involved on the album? That was very fascinating because I'd done a lot of work with Darren and Johnny and Jimmy, who wound up playing drums. We first did side one in a session, you know, went into Sunset Sound and Marley hadn't yet met Johnny or Darren, who are now like, you know, her musical brothers. You know, they were all very, very close and do lots of music together. But this was the first time she'd met them. Louise, it was so, you know, because we'd worked together for so long and we had this concept and the name and the whole thing and and here we are walking into Sunset Sound with these cats. And it was such an exciting moment of like, it's on. We've been waiting for this day for a long time and here it is. And it, it was just set. And we just walked in and started playing. And I think the first tune we did was it's not that easy. And it, it was a few takes. And, and then Darren came into the studio and was like, he was like, she's like some kind of like avatar. <laughs> you know, he was like, so played by Marley. And he's a pretty heavy cat, you know. And it was just like, you know, everybody was just really taken with how well things were going just from letter A. You know, it just really was working straight away and everybody was immersed in it. It was just one of those days, you know, you live for. I remember when we were doing Fix It and I waited because we had a lot of musical ground to cover and we did, it's not that easy first because it was like an easy one, you know, where it was really in Marley's wheelhouse. It was kind of like a soul tune. It was like, okay, this is a good one to get grease, grease the wheels with this. And, you know, slow tunes are really hard to play. They're hard to sing. (laughs) Right, Marley? Absolutely. They're so quiet. I mean, it's like really vulnerable. (laughs) You can hear all the empty space. Yeah, they're, they're hard. They're well. The they're thing really that's hard. that's yeah, and you're you're recording air. You're recording exactly. the silence between the music, you know, and and that's that's something that's not done enough. You need opposites. You need sound and silence to make sound yeah. worth something, or else it's just a cacophony of you know. Yep. It's right. uh, it sounds really live, all live, yeah. and, and that so was you the do- first time for me. Yeah, it was it, it was the first time recording in that manner, in that fashion. I had never recorded live, you know. So how beautiful that was of a moment. And there's just a, a whole other raw and, and, and realness to it. And I'm singing at the big glass sliding doors in the studio. And I'm looking out at everyone playing. It was like this magical moment that you just, you know, it's, I had that moment of, okay, it's, it's time. This is it, you know. It was really something. When you say vulnerable, were you used to in the past, well, I can sing this again and fix it. And, you know, this take, it's got to be the one I'm not doing this separate from the musicians. If they play a great take. I mean, was it pressure? Did you have the confidence? Were you? I had the confidence, but there is a bit of pressure because it's like, you know, (laughs) if if we get halfway or almost through, you know, a, a full take and everyone's perfect. 
God forbid I'm the one to fuck it up. <laughs> you know, when it's like scratch the whole take <laughs> and it's all my fault. There's, there's some pressure, but, but it, it was a good kind of pressure. <laughs> and everyone just flowed so beautifully together. I know it's really hard, but do you have a favorite song? I was going back and forth for a while, and then I, I end up always going back to Five Feet Tall. And not just because it's one of the originals, and which, by the way, that one, they really do all seem to come out at the end. That came out at the end of another session as well, <laughs> and, and very easily. But yeah, I always go back to Five Feet Tall. What's your favorite? I, I think Fix It For Me is the one that I can use in my life at any moment, you know? Yeah. You fixed it for Marley. (laughs) (laughs) She fixed it for me. (laughs) We fixed it for each other. I just say that because it's beautiful to see how nurturing you are to each other's needs. And Chris, you're kind of in the Lieber and Stoller tradition of being collaborator, musician, producer. And they were, to me, the first producers that were like, okay, we can't give this to the record company to go find another producer. We have to be in charge of the vision from the writing of the song all the way through to the record. And you're in that tradition. You're doing that. It's brilliant. I mean, all, all of my you know biggest successes have been things that have been sort of independent of interference, where it's just the artist and the producer and we're able to really find something, you know, outside of the pressure of needing to find something for a specific reason, you know, that you're just really trying to find the magic and the, and the wonderful music, you know, which is what it was. It was like, you know, even though we had a concept and a desire for it to, to do something, the real desire was to find, you know, the vehicle for Marley in a way that would just break people's hearts the way my therapist was just, you know, <laughs> brought to his knees in his office. It was like, that's what we want. We want to, we want to. <laughs> how do we that. make them cry? <laughs> how, do we, yeah. how do we make them weep uncontrollably? <laughs> you know, and, me, and and Chris, is, me and Chris in the studio with our evil laugh. <laughs> what does it feel like when, I mean, I'm sure you grew up listening to Nina Simone and Billie Holiday. Just what does it feel like to be compared to these people? They're giants on the Mount Olympus, you know. They sure are. And yeah, and they're why I do what I do. You know, I I grew up trying to emulate these people and and learning from these people. And I like to say I was trained by them. I was. I never had any music lessons or anything like that. But hours and hours of diving in and, and listening to these incredible legendary artists and these vocals and the, the music and the, and the sound and the song and taking that inspiration and trying to cultivate my own. It, it all came from them. So yeah, to be compared or, or said in the same sentence, it's, it really is something. It really is something. Chris, I, I want to know this story that you told me earlier. Well, it was last year when I spoke to you. You had just come back from the UK and you said that you were there and it was so exhausting. You were doing shows and then you were stuck in the UK. You couldn't come back because of quarantining and all of that. What happens? <laughs> oh, this is a story that both yeah, that Marley and I, we both lived through. I mean, we were set to go over there to do a, a run of Jules Holland and jazz cafe which is a beautiful club in in london and then four nights at the royal albert hall with gregory porter so we flew separately i flew from new york she flew from la we met at the airport we met at heathrow like at the exact same moment 
And she was like in a heap. She was like, I was like, yeah, I was like, here we go. And she was like, nah, uh. She was, she was not feeling good. She tested positive, you know, because it was all kinds of PCR tests she had to do to get into the country, but she was feeling horrible. And, you know, we had this apartment and we were watching movies, getting ready for the gigs. In fact, we went into the first rehearsal. She couldn't even make it through the rehearsal. You know, she was like, you know, we were doing a rehearsal with the band and she made it through like the first hour and then was like, I, I got to go back and get some rest. Well, and then remember when I landed, I was testing negative for like four days. That, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I said, I said, I said positive. I meant that she was testing negative. And so we were going, shit, I really have a nasty, really nasty flu. <laughs> this is horrible. Oh, uh, yeah. So testing negative that entire time. But- That's what was so confusing because she was so visibly ill but testing negative, you know, and we were testing, you know, hourly, testing a couple times a day. And so, you know, so she's super sick. And then we go to do the Jules Holland show and she's really, she's not well, you know, and we get through makeup and we do the test and, you know, she's such a, such a world-class instrument that, you know, singing the thing, it still sounds great, even though I know she's taking these decongestants. So some of the oil and grease that's usually in her voice that allows for a certain snarl or a certain thing, I could tell wasn't there. But it was still, <laughs> but it was still and, 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 and then there's me complaining, Chris, I have no control over my voice. And I think I'm going to drop dead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she was a total, she was a total trooper. I mean, she was sick, bad. She killed it on the show like she does. And then we get into the van afterwards to the sprinter to get back to the apartment. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, I feel horrible. Right. So we get back to the house and the next day we wake up and and we both test positive. That's when we've got the first positive. And that was the morning of the show that was supposed to be, what was that show? We were supposed to do jazz cafe that night. The jazz cafe that night. And it was sold, it was sold out. It was really, everyone was really looking forward to it. So we had to cancel that thinking we had 10 days or something like that before the Royal Albert Hall. We thought maybe we'd recover and be able to do them, but they did the right thing. They were like, no, we have to pull you off the dates, you know, and then we can't leave the country. So we're really, really, really sick. Both of us, we'd lost our sense of smell, sense of taste. Um, We were just really, I lost 10 pounds. She did too. You know, we were really. I did too. Unfortunately, I gained it all back, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, and then so we couldn't leave the country. Even even when we left, we both went to the airport and had to test at the airport. We were just praying that we would test negative. We'd been testing negative, but you just don't know. Tested negative, we finally got out of there. But it, it was very difficult. It was difficult to lose the dates. It was difficult to be away from home and be so sick. You know, because we were, we'd gotten the Delta and we both didn't know if we were going to have to go into hospital because we were, we were bad. It wasn't like the new, the Omicron where it was like (laughs) most people have gotten that and been sort of okay. And when we were over there, her entire family got it. My sister got it. Like we were, you know, it was a mess. It was a nightmare. It was a mess. It was a mess. So, yeah, this is a thing. You released a debut album in the middle of a pandemic. We haven't had a pandemic for a hundred years. So we have no idea how to deal with this. And you're out there like a trooper playing live shows, doing the thing that people do when they put out a debut. Man, how are you coping with the change in your lifestyle? Making a record is fun. You're in this womb-like setting of people you've hand-chosen, and then you've got to go out 
and work a lot. Well, you were used to working, but what was this like and how was it different? Yeah, it's, it's different. We're having to work. It's never worked for me because I love it so much. I love what I do, but it's now working under these circumstances that just take it to this whole other level of, yeah, of work because there is so many new things to think about. You do, you have so much fun when you're putting the record together and you want to have the same amount of fun, if not more, because for me, I love the stage. I love the studio. That's the creating. But then to be able to actually perform these on stage, is like there's nothing like that. So that's the part I look forward to the most. And so now it's more than just going to do that, but it's with all of these safety precautions and possibilities and things happening like that, you know, canceled shows. It's just a mess. It's a mess. It's having, you know, for us to, to really tape ourselves in this bubble if you would, to try to stay safe so things like that don't happen. And yeah, it's uh, it's definitely different trying to <laughs> trying to promote and tour and, and play during during these times. But nonetheless, I tell you what, that first time back on that stage, um, I don't think I had seen that that side of the stage. I've been up there for about a year and a half. So that moment, even though it was in you know this pandemic horrible moment was just such a relief i missed it so much so (laughs) we got staying safe as we can you know even if we look overdone sometimes that's why you know yeah and chris you're an artist you sing you know you've been producing how do you balance those sides of yourself because I, I know your heart beats like an artist. You are always thinking like an artist. It's what makes you such a great producer because you understand the artist side of it. How is it for you to go out performing and facilitate what this record is and leave home, travel and do all that? Because you were somebody who was staying home more and doing productions and co-writing and writing songs than you were someone going out and touring. How has that been for you? I really stopped doing the road gig when I had a child, you know, now she's grown, she's 18. And I, I mean, I wouldn't be compelled to be on the road, you know, for the sake of being on the road, but to be part of Marley's ecosystem and play this music that we love so much is thrilling. And this is what's so incredible to me about this experience is because of our longevity together. The first gig we did is Lady Blackbird. It was a sold out night at the Troubadour. Desi Valentine had sold it out and we were opening. But this was our first gig as Lady Blackbird. No one knew who she was. We take the stage. She starts singing. I'm behind her. And I just see all these people's mouths agape going, what the fuck is this? Like just people freaking out. You know, just the, 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 the joy I had in seeing people's response to her. I, I've been waiting so long, you know, working so long and waiting for this moment where she's in the right setting and people are getting a chance to see her perform her own music. And it was almost like seeing the future in that moment because the record wasn't even done yet or it certainly wasn't out. But the way people responded to it, you know, I've only had that kind of thing happen a few times in my life where it's just like, it's just like, wow. I can't tell you the amount of times I hear, how do I not know about this? How do I not know about this already? Like people receive Lady Blackbird as if she's already a star. And, and that happened from the first show. 
So it happened at the first show at the Troubadour. It happened at the first show at the We Out Here Festival, which was the first show in the UK. It happened at the 100 Club, which was sold out. You know, I'm like for me to be able to stand back and see her sing Fix It with, you know, Sam Bass playing piano and people crying is so deeply rewarding and it, it, I have such deep satisfaction because it was like all those years of like going to the perch and me being furious that it was like, you know, why is no one here? You know? And like now people queuing up all over the world, you know, to see her and know the words and have this response. It's an incredible thing to be a part of and to watch happen, you know, cause I'm standing behind her seeing it. You know, I'm not in the front line, you know, getting my picture taken. I'm like back there, you know, providing the music, you know, with the other cats. And it's, it's so, it's thrilling, really is thrilling. And, and musically, so deeply rewarding. Because to me, it's like, you know, the musical bouillabaisse that we make, everything, like the live shows have grown. Like the last show we did at Zebulon in LA, we opened with a Moby tune and did sort of this psychedelic jazz intro that brought, brought her on. And it's just like, it keeps growing and mutating musically on stage which we'll, of course, bring into the studio. So it's it's musically, I said this to Johnny Flower, the bass player, I was like, it's just everything we love. We get to play everything we love, you know, and, and listen to the greatest singer in the world sing it. It's like, you know, those are gigs, you know, that's why you, you start music because you want to get to that place. So long answer, right? <laughs> so that's what's up. <laughs> Can you tell me about Gold Diggers, you know, how that gig came and then how you met your record company and how how all that came together? Yeah, Gold Diggers was actually the very last show that we played right before the pandemic. So we had played, yeah, only Troubadour, Hotel Cafe, and, and then Gold Diggers was the very last one. And Felix was there that night and he tells a story that was actually the last show he saw <laughs> before everything shut down. Oh, and that was the last show we saw and, and that was the last show we played, <laughs> which was so disappointing because it was just getting started. Right. We played the um, whole album that yeah. day. So it was like the first real where the band was starting to get greased and it was like, oh, it felt, yeah. you know, it was a proper, proper club and it was a really nice, it's a good show. So you leave that one waiting for the next one and then you realize, oh, shit, there's not going to be a next one. <laughs> and Felix was just there for the for the entertainment of it. I think Ross, I've spoken about Ross Allen, whose label we signed with in the UK. He invited Felix down as a mate, you know, just to come check it out. Ah. And then as things started to heat up in the UK, um, I think maybe we, yeah, we put out a few singles. We put out Blackbird initially just through Foundation and things as they've gone with this, they reacted immediately. And Lit picked it up here and KCRW started playing it and everybody just was like, what is this? And it started to hot up in the UK and we were in the process of, you know, we were in negotiations with a label and Felix had left his publishing gig and started working for BMG as an A&R guy. And, you know, when he found out that this could possibly be available, because we were deep in negotiations, it just, that that's how that situation happened. And yeah, and he's such a wonderful cat. I, I, I didn't know him beforehand, but I'm, 
I know we're both so happy to know him. He's such a beautiful guy. I love me some Felix. <laughs> <laughs> and you know him. Yeah, it's lovely when your friends are all working together and doing wonderful yeah. things. You're proud of him. So I remember, Marley, you brought up at the very beginning of this interview that the last time we saw each other was at the Hotel Cafe. And I just remembered what it was. It was Chris doing a Playing, Van Morrison. Yes! Remember? Yes. <laughs> oh shit! Oh, that's exactly yeah, it was what a, it was. It was Van big... Morrison. It was a Van Morrison yes. night, and I I did Van's version of "It's All Over Now, Baby Blue," which, if you've not heard that record, it's an incredible version. I mean, it's an incredible song by Dylan, but Van, it's, it's his band, them. They do an unbelievable version of that tune, which which we did. You think will last But whatever you wish to keep You better grab it fast Yonder stands your orphan with his gun Crying like a fire in the sun The saints are coming through And it's all over now ended the night playing Gloria, sort of Patti Smith style, and it was so much fun. It was so much fun, and Johnny was playing bass at that gig, I remember. Yeah, it was Johnny was the MD, I think he put the, it was his show. Was oh, he, he really? Yeah, Johnny put the night together, so he was bringing because in all I the singers. Because I hadn't met him yet. Right, you hadn't met him yet. Yeah, I hadn't but, met him but yet, Johnny, didn't even click. <laughs> yeah, Johnny asked me to do it, because I had done the Bowie, we had done a Bowie night like a few years before that, which was really, really fun. And then I think we were planning on doing another one. I've forgotten who the artist was. And I was like, we got to get Marley to do it. I've forgotten who it was now. But anyway, when, when we can all get out in the world again freely and get in the space and not feel like we're going to need, you know, call the ambulance. <laughs> It's a different world now. We're learning how to live in it. And, yeah. you know, like when you're saying the thing about touring and everything, it's like, you know, we're no different than anyone else is doing this. You know, like um, we did a date over the summer with Trombone Shorty, whose album I produced, his, his album's dropping this year. Marley's all over the record. She sang background all over the album and co-wrote one of the tunes, you know, and they, they were canceling road dates all of last year. You know, we got to do, we played Celebrate Brooklyn in Prospect Park with Trombone Shorty. We opened and yeah, it's just like, oh, what a great you know, show that was. And that, that was, was a such great a fun feeling. one. God, that was that such was a really fun one. Yeah. So when you do them, it's, it's so deeply rewarding. It's just, you know, there's a lot. I was saying to um, our label president that it's like the way people do it now, you sort of have to take away the social aspect of it and really be out there for the shows and kind of live in your pod and try not to socialize too much. And, you know, cause you don't want to wind up canceling shows. Cause in fact, you know, People were canceling shows around us all the time and we were seemingly lucky and then the same thing happened to us, but it's kind of happened to anybody who's gotten out there, you know, it's just, it's part of what you're in right now and you're trying to stay as, you know, knowledgeable and cool and safe as you can. 
because we're going to be doing European dates and going to different countries and it's going to be tricky, you know, but luckily for us, we've been through it. You know, we made a couple of trips last year. So I think we're less fearful in that sense. And I think we're a little bit more knowledgeable about what to do and not to do. Yeah. I didn't ask you how, Chris, did you and Marley originally meet? Because when I met you, Chris, you already knew Marley and you were already doing some recording with her saying, I just want to stop everything and work with Marley. <laughs> and I, there it is. There it is. I wanted to stop everything. Because no, I was like, this is like the great artist. You know, it's like for what I do, it's those moments where you're working with someone who's so exceptional is that's why you do it, you know. And I was just on a roll in that moment where I was working with Andrew Day and I was writing with Andrew and I was like, this is the greatest singer in the world. And then a week later, Marley walked in my studio and I was like, this is the greatest singer in the world. <laughs> and it was, you know, and I got to meet Marley because I was friends with Andrew's publisher who, who turned out to also be Marley's publisher. So he's like, you should write with this girl. And so we started with some assignment right. and then I was like, I gotta, I gotta work with her. What's going on with this girl? Cause I want to be working with her. And so we got deeply immersed in working together. You know, that's when it started for us. And, uh, you know, we went through a couple of different machinations musically because I'd been an artist. I really went through the process with her because I, when I first started, I was like, oh, great. You know, I'd done the fits and tantrums thing. I just done Andrew. I was like another soul thing. We'll just crack it and kill it. Marley had some other ideas musically. And I was willing to go down that, what turned out to be rabbit hole <laughs> with her. <you> know? <laughs> and we sort of, you know, really got inside of, Everything that she was, was a hell of thinking a hole. about. What <laughs> <laughs> hell of a hole. You know, just did all kinds. But, you know, I'm, I'm so glad because I really know her stretch. You know, I really know, like, who she is musically. I know her intimately musically, you know. So it's because of that. I think, you know, we just have such a shorthand where it's just like we can, you know, we sort of have the same brain when we're talking about stuff. We can conceptualize, you know, musically without a guitar or piano or anything. We could just talk about it because we, yeah. we've been through the <laughs> process so deeply. <laughs> so what stage are you at writing and recording another record together? We're in it. We've already been, you know, working yeah. on material and, and writing for it. It's coming along beautifully, if I do say so myself. <laughs> and they're coming out so naturally. Yeah, it's really starting to take shape, but we're definitely in it. <laughs> yeah, we've been conceptualizing, you know, lyri the lyrical concept and what the album cover will look like and stuff like that, too. Like fully immersing in it as an album, you know, as the other one was. So it's not just a collection of songs, but there's a narrative. So that's really fun. You know, like as we grew up, you know, loving albums and making albums, that is the desire here for Lady Blackbird. You know, that's kind of what we're what we're doing, you know. We did a live concert. We played five tunes live at Capitol with the record band, which we filmed in the big room there, which was kind of thrilling, you know, where Sinatra and Ned Cole and all these cats cut records. Johnny Flower on bass, Darren Johnson on piano, and Lamar Carter, who wasn't on Black Acid Soul, but we recorded with him and cut five songs live. I remember I all the pain always rain around my eyes 
It'll never happen again It'll never happen again It'll never happen again Every time I leave you alone I remember times I couldn't come home It'll never happen again Are you born this way? You know, being brutally honest, I awful because I should probably do a bit more self care. Yeah, man, she just walks around with that thing. It's so infuriating. <laughs> <laughs> Except when I have COVID and, and I'm on decongestant. Yeah, but meanwhile, even COVID didn't break her throat. I love wine, I love whiskey, so probably none of those things should be on the damn list. It's such a haunting record. Your therapist was right. Well, this has been amazing. I wish you all success that you deserve. May it go global and soothe a lot of the souls that need soothing in this world right now. Beautiful. Thank you so much. <laughs> stay tuned and stay posted because we are booking all these new dates. That's wonderful. And people can go to YouTube as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can find Lady Blackbird on IG, Facebook, Twitter, the usual handles. Well, thank you both so much for doing this. Marley, thank you. <laughs> it was so good to talk to you. And really excited. Yeah, we got to get together. I miss you and love you both. You too, Lou. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Enjoy Bye. your day. Bye-bye. Thank you, Lady Blackbird and Chris Seafried, for that joyful conversation. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave a review wherever you stream. This concludes Season 2 of Song Chronicles. You know, she comes around. This season's episodes have been more spaced out to give me time to make a new record. Once that's done, we'll be back for Season 3. Thanks for listening. I'm your host and producer, Louise Goffin.